here with Jonas Ketterle. Um, he's the founder and CEO of Firefly Chocolate, which is a purveyor of bean to bar cacao. The brand, the company specializes in five origins of pure cacao from small family farms. And Jonas and Firefly have pioneered a bioregional wild harvest chocolate bar that celebrates a little known food used by the native peoples of the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, he's got an incredibly interesting previous life as well as an Imagineer at Greenlight Planet and an engineer lead at Phoenix International, where he worked to provide affordable solar energy to rural customers. Jonas, you're an engineer, an entrepreneur, an expert in cacao, and I'm sure many other things. Um, you've also had a first row seat to the evolution of direct-to-consumer brand building and e-commerce, um, which has grown so, so exponentially over the last decade. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and talk to you about what you've learned over the last nearly nine years building Firefly. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, can you can you start off by telling us just your story wherever you wherever you'd like people to to hear its beginnings from? Sure. Uh, for me, my deep dive with chocolate began in 2012 when I was in Oaxaca, Mexico. I uh, you know, I'm a German. I grew up basically eating a chocolate bar a day. That's what Germans do. They have the world's highest per capita chocolate consumption. Um, but until I got to Oaxaca, Mexico, I had never actually thought about how chocolate was made. And um, here I was in the courtyard of a Zapotec indigenous grandmother who is like, hey, you want to make some chocolate? Let me get some cacao beans from my pantry and show you how to sort through them. And then we'll roast them on this primitive clay fire uh, or, or clay clay comal it's good it's a comal that's why i'm struggling for the word in english for it because we don't have one it's it's a giant clay round plate um that you toast the cacao beans on and then we just sat there for hours hand peeling the beans and we took those same freshly toasted beans ground them up mixed some honey in and it was immediately ranked as some of the best chocolate i'd ever had my whole life despite my lifelong passion for chocolate so i it really was this aha moment for me where i was like wow, how can this be? How can I replicate this very ancestral, connected, traditional experience um, in the North? You know, how, how, how can I bring that to, to the Western audiences while staying in integrity with the lineage that was here? Um, and so that was kind of the working thesis um, that was fresh in between solar jobs at that point. I actually went back uh, to my second job in solar at Greenlight Planet and worked there part-time while just developing my skill set as a chocolate maker over the following two years. I you know, knew very little about making chocolate. I knew even less about sales and marketing and running a business. Um, but after, after a couple of years of that experience, I got to the moment where I was like, you know, I think I want to try my hand in business. I want to try this. Um, and so, so committed more fully to starting Firefly. So I, I think just based on what you just said, I think people obviously eat a lot of chocolate, but really don't understand how it's made. And I think what you just said is it starts with roasting the beans and then peeling the beans. But what, what happens from there? Um, so this is actually a fascinating thing, which most people think that when you grind the beans, right, they're, they're solid beans, that you would grind them and you would get cacao powder. And that's what cacao powder is. But actually, the bean is about 50% uh, cacao butter, which is a fat. That fat melts at body temperature. So just the friction from grinding the beans 
actually causes the beans to melt into a liquid chocolate paste. It's very wow. coarse at first, and then it gets finer and finer until you have pure 100% cacao. And so that's, and then all the chocolate derivatives are made from there. So if you want to make a 70% bar, then you add cane sugar into it. If you want to make cacao powder, you actually squeeze the fat out of it. And that's how you get cacao butter and cacao powder. But that 100% cacao is, is actually what the pure beans will transition directly to you just through the grinding process. Um, so is the derivative that you use to make the actual bar, um, the solid form of chocolate, is, is the derivative, derivative start with the butter or does it start with the powder? So the powder and the butters are actually the end product derivatives. We start with whole beans and just take it to 100% chocolate and then take that to bars or discs or whatever we're making. So we never actually even go that additional step. Um, and that, that is part of where the quality in our products lie in that it's a whole food. You know, it, we've gone from the whole bean to pure liquid chocolate, but we've never added or removed anything. Um, and that's, that's where a lot of the health benefits of cacao are. You know, the, the cacao has actually co-evolved with humans over millennia to affect our neurochemistry and our health in a profound way. Um, and not tinkering with that and just keeping it in its whole form is, is probably the wisest. Um, okay, so take us back. You started the company in 2012, is that right? 2014. Two years after that experience in Oaxaca. Okay, okay, that's kind of what I wanted to get at is the aha moment that you had in Mexico was in 2012. And then it wasn't until two years later that you started the company. Yeah, my grandmother passed away in 2014. And that was kind of this moment where I was like, you know, I'm pretty good at solar and my engineering career. But life is short. My grandma just passed away. Like, am I going to do the thing that I'm really passionate about, which is clearly the cacao? Like, you know, I was working on circuit boards and writing the software for the solar systems, and it was good. It was a good living, but my heart wasn't in it. Like, I, I noticed I was like stress eating, and I was, I had to like make myself do it at times. It, it was just hard. And with the with working with chocolate, I just felt like I had unlimited energy. I could stay up all night. I could wake up early the next morning and keep right going. I was just stoked. And so I, it was this realization that I had to shift my life to follow what I was really stoked about, even, even if the details of, you know, having a reliable salary and things like that weren't as clear. Hmm. Well, what, that's, that's kind of one of the moments in, in the entrepreneurial journey that always fascinates me is is, is the experience one of, I see market opportunity that I want to exploit, or have I found something um, almost more of a lifestyle than a market opportunity that is really fulfilling to me? And it sounds like it may be that latter for you, but if, if that's not true, maybe you could kind of riff on how you thought about something that you were so passionate about versus something that had to also make sense as a business opportunity. Yeah, I don't think I stumbled onto that market opportunity almost until 2017. Um, in 2014, it was, it was a passion thing and I thought I had a market opportunity, but I didn't understand the market well enough. So what I was doing at that time was I was making 85% dark chocolate bars with coconut sugar. I had a whole bunch of different flavors and such. And I thought, I, I, I you know, people told me this is unlike anything else that's out there. We really want it. But I didn't realize that how competitive the chocolate bar market was and that 
most of the folks I was like 90% of the brands I was competing against didn't actually make their own chocolate from scratch from cacao beans like I learned in Oaxaca Mexico they actually have industrial chocolate as their input um, were cheaper than the beans that we were buying so just to begin with they already had way better margins and because it was all contracted out um, they you know could just spend all their time on marketing and sales while I was laboriously figuring out how to make chocolate and make a good product um, and then you know on top of that we were doing all this amazing work sourcing the cacao beans and you know consumers just didn't know the difference like you have a paragraph on the back of a chocolate bar yours is already more expensive than every everybody else's they're like why would i buy this <laughs> so it turned out to be a really hard sell uh to be out there in the market with really ethically sourced health conscious chocolate bars when the market was just flooded with all these different brands which were honestly turning over every one or two years you know it was the brands that i was seeing in the store were constantly changing they weren't lasting but they were the competition and they were basically the noise that kept me from getting my story out there so that was kind of the the struggle from i would say 2014 to 2016 um what i stumbled upon though during that process was making drinking chocolate so i would take my chocolate bars i would take a whole chocolate bar and put it in a cup of hot water and blend it up and make this frothy, creamy cacao drink. And I began having these amazing experiences, like having a cup and it would just shift, it would shift my uh, perception, my neurochemistry. Like I would just feel elated. I would, I would feel better in my body than I would feel otherwise. And I began tracking that experience and really chronicling how the cacao was impacting my day-to-day -day experience. Um, and I went into it, you know, because I started the company while I was still working part-time at Greenlight Planet, um, and my job there was to be creative, to be an Imagineer, I really saw the chocolate as an aid to my creative process. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in the kind of, the ways that the cacao was affecting my neurochemistry and helping me actually do more in a day or, or tap into that elusive creative state on a more regular basis. So, um, that's all to say i got into the drinking chocolate side and i began enjoying 100 percent cacao i realized it didn't need to be sweetened it like it was just so fresh and so potent it was kind of more like coffee you know you don't expect coffee to be sweet i stopped expecting chocolate to be sweet and i stumbled upon a movement which was called ceremonial cacao which was folks interested in this mind altering state of the cacao um and and ingesting it consciously for that and i I looked on Google and basically the closest place you could get it from was like shipped up from Guatemala. The website looked like it was built in 1990. There was no customer support at all. They basically said our, our postal service is shut down right now. We can't even get it to you. Try reaching one of these distributors. So I, I was just like, wow, what if somebody based in the U S could reliably ship this, you know, we could, pretty quickly rank high on Google just with SEO. Um, there could be a market opportunity for this. I didn't really want to associate Ceremonial Cacao with my main brand though. So I actually made a completely separate website and tested out the concept. And just immediately, um, 
that started doing better than my whole chocolate bar brand and all the efforts I had put into that. So there was, there was clearly a need in the marketplace. Um, and then we further innovated on, on the product offering there to introduce a whole bunch of new things that nobody else had been doing yet in that space. Um, and that, that kind of really just propelled us forward. But that was, that was the moment where I was like, oh my goodness. And in retrospect, it all made sense. You couldn't get this stuff anywhere. So of course people were shipping and buy, willing to pay the shipping, willing to buy online. Chocolate bars, you can walk into any store. Why would anybody buy that online? That's where you know you need a really well-funded wholesale strategy kind of thing to succeed. That is such a good story. Um, and I'm interested on, on a number of fronts. Um, I'm interested at the product level and the experience that you had and, and the neurochemical changes, because that's something that I'm, I'm, I don't know a lot about. Um, and I'm also really interested in just the competitive experience that you went through and kind of the innovation that led to a, a level of positioning that, that was truly differentiated. So I think people are really interested in chocolate because we all consume chocolate and they, we know so little about it. So maybe just because it's, it's such a fascinating um, product, can you just talk a little bit about um, the neurochemical changes that you experienced so that people have that insight a little bit? I, I know that in the story that I've read on your website uh, and in my own kind of research ahead of this, you know, these experiences can feel energetic in the way that caffeine can maybe feel energetic, but they can also feel in some ways like they, they transcend um, kind of the human experience in some ways and can release um, real pain. They can also release real power and, and, and zest. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that before we get into more of the business side of all this. Yeah, uh, that all that's that's all very on point, you know. Is is kind of shifting our relationship from with chocolate as just candy, something that we have to thuse to to like meet a sweet sweet tooth, and that's you know kind of this unhealthy habit that we shouldn't really be doing to like this thing that we can feel 100% good about that can shift us into these profound states of consciousness and trigger healing experiences and help us pursue our passions and all those things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of imagine chocolate as this like sophisticated cocktail of many different compounds. You don't really know which one's going to play out on any given day, which is why I spend so much time just like take, you know, I would write down, how do I feel now? I would drink my cup of cacao two hours later, I'd be like, okay, how do I feel now? And just, just kind of see how all these different human states I brought to the table or to the cup would then shift um, through my experience with the chocolate. And in some cases, yeah, theobromine is the primary uh, molecule that is similar to caffeine. It's actually in the same family, but caffeine is a nervous system stimulant and theobromine is a cardiac stimulant. So it's a bit more of an embodied energy. It's not as heady. Um, people say it's not as jittery. Um, the, I would say that the peak of the energy is about a, as a quarter as high as it is caffeine. So it's, it's not as forceful, um, but theobromine actually has a much longer half-life than caffeine. So the effect can last all day. So it's, it's less of a spike and more of just this long sustained energy. Um, Theobromine is not just a cardiac stimulant. It also relaxes your blood vessels. So it helps promote circulation through your entire body. Um, circulation, like it's like, you know, 20 to 30% boost in your cir circulation. Um, 
And that just moves energy that moves through stagnancy, you know, certain parts of your body where something may, may be stuck. It could be an emotion. It could be an area not getting enough nutrients or something like that. That just sets stuff in motion. So that's, that's why theobromine can be so beneficial. It's also the highest like natural source of magnesium. Um, and actually many Westerners are deficient in magnesium. Magnesium is an essential catalyst just for heart and brain function. It doesn't really get consumed by those chemical reactions. It's just needed. The, you know, a catalyst is you just need it to be in the presence um, for the heart and the mind to function properly. Um, but magnesium can get stripped from the body. Things like lack of sleep, stress, alcohol, uh, even caffeine can strip magnesium from the body. Regularly need to take magnesium in. Many people take magnesium supplements, um, but it's the naturally naturally occurring in cacao and it's, it's one of the best ways to, to get it in your body. Um, so it can just help with a whole variety of health symptoms that way. Like, you know, in fact, like depression has been linked to magnesium deficiencies and, and various other um, internal disorders. So lots of ways that just being really up on your magnesium is beneficial. Um, then on like a, a neurological level, those are you know, that's, that was like stimulant level, mineral level. On a neurological level, um, cacao has a whole bunch of compounds. Um, I'll just list a few. Anandamide is considered the bliss molecule, which is kind of the runner's high molecule, right? That feeling you have when you stop exercising. Uh, Norepinephrine is a similar molecule, but it's, it's more commonly known as the joy molecule. It's just like the state of elation. Um, there's also... Uh, Phenylethylamine, which is, is a molecule that kind of gives you a sense of uh, relaxation and well-being. It's, it's, it counters stress. Um, there's a, also just like dopamine and serotonin precursors in the cow that, that also just help you feel good. So all of these molecules that help you either feel joyful, blissful, or just relaxed and stress-free um, are, are triggered by the cacao. Cacao has the neuro reuptake inhibitors for these same molecules. You don't just get a fleeting high feeling these feelings. It's actually engineered to stay around in your brain for a while. Um, the body is really intelligent. It recycles, you know, all these different molecules that swim through our bloodstream to put them to other purpose, to put them to other uses. And so that's why you have these recycling mechanisms, but the neuro reuptake inhibitors, they prevent those pathways from functioning for a few hours so that you actually feel uh, those beneficial effects for a while longer. Um, so that's a real brief overview of it. <laughs> it's a great overview. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the, the magnesium component of cacao and it's not surprising that Westerners have low magnesium with low lack of sleep, too much alcohol, too much stress, this kind of, you know, unbridled search for efficiency and, um, you know, the, stand, the status anxiety that is so rampant in our culture around money. So uh, that's not surprising at all. Um, it actually leads me to kind of something I've been thinking a lot about, um, and this is more just a riff and tangent, but this idea that we perpetuate, especially I think from Silicon Valley about the idea of the wartime CEO um, and just kind of the language uh, around which we associate business and how militant that language can be um, versus, you know, kind of 
maybe kind of more Eastern philosophy oriented around kind of middle way thinking where it's, it's really more about connection between the two cells and um, the benefits that accrue to those who focus on service to others. I've, I've always been really impressed with the CEO of Zoom, for instance, who stands out to me amongst Silicon Valley companies as being somebody much more focused on customer happiness than on wartime. Um, but that, that maybe is a useful segue into competition and how, how you have thought about competition in the context of both kind of a spiritual and philosophical approach to life, uh, but also in kind of a pragmatic approach to building a business that, uh, that, that you're trying to build. And so you described, I think, quite well um, the landscape in 2014, 2014 to 2016, 17 as being one in which brands were constantly popping up, but not having a lot of staying power. I think probably a lot of people are familiar with the Mast Brothers story where there was this huge company, but then there was all of the controversy associated with what was uncovered there. Um, and we, we started to become acclimated to 10 and $12 chocolate bars with beautifully designed wrapping in places like Whole Foods. But can you, can you talk a little bit more about what was the nature of competition like from 2014 to 2017? How has that, uh, that industry and that space evolved over the last several years since then? Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I just want to reflect also on what you just said about Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, like work culture, leadership culture, is that, you know, I quite honestly, I burned out at both of my Silicon Valley jobs. And I went into the with so much passion, you know, totally believing in the cause. And then, and then I hit this level of burnout. And so my inquiry with starting my own business was like, how do I avoid that? Um, how do I, how do I keep the passion alive? Because I love chocolate so much. I don't want to burn out on this. It would suck to burn out on my own business. Um, so, so pacing was, was a really important thing. And I, I, I kind of simultaneously made, sure to adapt some other hobbies as well like i started dancing more frequently and i started practicing yoga and people are like well how do you have time for this it's like well i'm okay with things growing a little bit slower i'm okay with like having my process take me a bit more of a journey like yes i have to survive as a business but you know i know i i won't get from like a zero to a thriving business overnight it's gonna be a process of years so as long as i can like eke out a survival for that like that was my goal you know it was like as long as i'm following my passion making a difference in people's lives i don't know it doesn't have to be like blowing up right off right off the bat like sure my the ego side of me wanted it to be blowing up and i wanted it to be this huge success but I was also really happy with the balance I had in my life that I was able to develop outside of the business and develop other skills and, and just be healthy in my body. So the first few years that was, that was a big priority and it gave me the time to, to kind of build the business on a deeper structural level that would set us up for success in the coming years and set us up for growing very quickly um, when, when we were ready for it. Um, but I, you know, I often see I, that I've seen at startups, like people spend a lot of money to grow quickly before they're ready and they just end up wasting all that money. And then they're indebted to investors and end up, you know, losing autonomy to take the business in the direction that they want to. So I was, I was really looking to other businesses that had taken a much slower approach to growth, um, and really build, building a strong foundation, a strong culture. Um, well, and then learning marketing skills to 
to communicate that over time, you know, and to, to share it from that place. And maybe it's just one kind of insert there before you go on that also it's, it's not only, I think the approach that you're describing that you took is not only different from kind of the standard Silicon model, Silicon Valley model where the, the goal is rapid growth and, and kind of the, the language used is blowing up. Um, but, but it's also different from a lot of the way e-commerce and direct-to-consumer brand building has evolved because venture capital poured into direct-to-consumer e-commerce and often in ways that were predicated on assumptions around things like Facebook advertising that don't turn out to be true in the long term. And so you see brands that probably have a huge amount of, um, you know, a huge capacity for longevity not setting themselves up for longevity because there's, there's too much effort to acquire customers in the short term. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, part of what I was looking at too is like, what's the arc of my journey with chocolate? Like it would be kind of maniacal hubris to assume that I could be two years into my chocolate making journey and expect to have the best chocolate out there to market it as such you know to just be like here i am this newbie like look at me like that to me feels like the classic like you know mid-20s techie rookie mistake you know of like you know there's there's many I'll, i'll happily say there's many chocolate makers with decades more experience you know the indigenous peoples who grow our cacao have been doing this for centuries upon centuries so like i i really had to take a big dose of humility and say like there's so much to learn and i saw that fortunately that is actually probably the best thing i took away from silicon valley culture was this open embrace of failure of not taking it personally of of this mentality of fail early fail often like i would just try things and some stuff would work out but you know twice as many things would not work out and that's how i saw and expected my learning process to be so the early years of my company was just kind of scattershot. Like I tried every possible sales and marketing channel. I, I tried to do so many different things with chocolate techniques, chocolate machines, chocolate sourcing. I, I just like tried it all and learned a lot of very humbling lessons. But out of that focus emerged this like very crystal clear pathway to take forward. And that's what people often ask me. They're like, well, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Or like, you know, shouldn't you be doing these 10 different things? Like, how do you know that's it? And I was like, it's because I went through that whole process. And so, you know, that's, that's where like the early years of the company, like 2012 to 2017, I needed five years to really just play and experiment uh, and not have to answer to any investors and their expectation of returns on investment. Like, and, and, you know, that meant not spending very much on advertising at all. That meant really just just making enough sales at the local farmer's market and with a few wholesale accounts and going to some festivals to support the hobby. Um, so that was that was kind of the foundation building that happened for a moment. That's great. That's great. So um, 2017 happens. You, after a scattershot approach to... Um, the business for a number of years, you you find this position in the market. And this position in the market is really around a movement, a movement around ceremonial cacao that um, is just not accessible to at least the American market. Um, and so you start to invest heavily there. You experiment before you, you fully make the investment. Um, talk to us about the next three years. 
what, what's different from 2017 to 2020? So this is a, we did two things. We, we did a lot of user-centered design, which is another thing I took out of Silicon Valley, you know, like really putting our shoes in, put, putting ourselves in the shoes of our eventual customers and understanding what their pain points was. One of them was just access to cacao. Another one was our actually initial ceremonial cacao offering were these big chunks of chocolate because that's how it was being sold in the marketplace. And I noticed after a few months that that wasn't working because I would go over to my friend's house and they'd still have like 80% of that big chunk of chocolate thing in a cupboard. I was like, this is medicine. Why aren't you using it? And they're like, oh, I mean, I have to like chop it up on the cutting board. It's just like too much work. And I was like, oh man, we have to like really make this easy for people. No way. <laughs> so I ended up taking the, the tempering machine, which I had started off the company with to deposit, which is used for depositing and molding chocolate bars. I completely hacked it to, to output the chocolate out of some X pipes with holes in them uh, so that I could create chocolate chips. And I had an interesting moment when I brought these chocolate chips to the farmer's market because I was handing out the chocolate chip. The chocolate chips also came up because I was tired of breaking up these beautifully formed chocolate bars and handing them out as samples. So I was like, why don't I just make chips? They're already perfectly sample size. Immediately people asked me, can I buy the chips? And I was like, no way. These are way too labor intensive for us to make. We're like set up for chocolate bars, like buy the bar. And people like wouldn't stop asking me to buy the chips. And so I, eventually I relented and, and listened and, and realized that people loved this format and that it would solve this problem of the giant chunk of chocolate sitting in the cupboard forever. Because, you know, what's, what's so brilliant about the chips is you can, you can take your dosage of cacao, you know, it's like, okay, cool. I want five discs of cacao today, or like, I could just put a single disc in my mouth, I, but you can keep track of how much you have. And that can then be feedback for your internal compass of how the cacao is affecting your, your felt and lived experience. So, so that the, the chips was a really crucial part of what we did. The other thing I learned making chocolate bars was I got into this as a purist. So it's, and I'll talk about this more in a moment, but in 2017, I actually found myself at the confluence of three different movements. There was the ceremonial cacao movement, but there's also the raw chocolate movement, which was all about raw chocolate, chocolate that supposedly hasn't been roasted or even fermented necessarily. That's just about as direct of a connection to the plant as possible, where people were wanting the same health benefits that I'm talking about. Um, but unfortunately, I think they were going about it in a rather misguided way. And there was a lot of misleading marketing. Um, and then there's a the bean to bar chocolate movement, which is kind of what I started off was making my chocolate bars from scratch to make these really premium chocolate bars. Um, but less less a focus on health. It was really just like the premium chocolate bar, much more about the sourcing and the process. So I was swirled up in all three of those different movements. Um, and in that process of making chocolate bars, I'll, I'll loop back to that. I, I came in as a purist from the bean to bar, like it should just be cacao and sugar. There should be anything else in it. I went to the farmer's markets and people kept asking me like, what flavors do you have? And I was like, I, well, I have chocolate from this country and this country and this country, and they all taste different. Like, it's just like wine. How could you ask me what flavor I have? Like, these are the different flavors. But sure enough, people, you know, I made an almond and sea salt bar. People love that one. You know, it, it, it's just like the, the flavors were really what captured people's inspiration and curiosity more so than these different origins that 
folks didn't really feel much of a connection to or know much about. So um, I, I learned from those days to make flavors. And at the time, no, I, I mean, making 100% cacao was already quite rare in the marketplace. Nobody was making 100% cacao with flavors or with superfoods in it. So we pioneered that. We, you know, in my own experimentation, I had, I got really curious about mushrooms and I was making mushroom teas for health. And instead of blending my chocolate in hot water, I was blending them in mushroom teas. Again, it was that kind of thing of like, nobody's gonna go to the effort of decocting these mushrooms for hours and hours. So I, I learned to take these water extracted mushroom powders and grind them into the chocolate. It actually complemented the chocolate flavor quite well. It didn't really taste like mushroom, it tasted more earthy, which is one of the flavored notes of chocolate anyways. And then people were able to get all these mushrooms into their bodies, which are also really beneficial for health. Um, and chocolate's like the perfect delivery mechanism because of that vasodilation I talked about from the theobromine that, that actually gets those mushrooms deeper into your tissues where they can actually benefit your health. So that was our first like flavored 100% with a, a medicinal mushroom cacao. Um, and since then we've released a number of other flavors as well or superfood pairings. Um, and you know, pioneering that on the marketplace was something that is still setting us apart. There's only one other company really doing it. Um, and it's, it's become an important part of how we stand out from the competition, at least in the ceremonial cacao movement, because the most ceremonial cacao movements, they'll have like one or two products. Most companies, they'll be like, well, we have an Ecuadorian cacao and a Peruvian cacao, something like that. But for us, we have five different origins that we work with and then four different flavors. And they've all come out because they've been parts of my journey of like, you know, wanting to get these mushrooms into my body, wanting to work with rose medicinally and, and all these other curiosities that I've had. And it's allowed me to really develop a lifestyle around cacao that has variety. Like I don't just want to drink the same thing every single day for the rest of my life. Like I, you know, I have nine different cacaos I can choose from. They all have an energetic and physical impacts. So I, I really kind of have this whole medicine cabinet I go to when I look at our product range now. Um, so in addition to the discs, the different, all the variety we've started offering really set us apart. That's, that's super interesting. There were a couple of things that you touched on that I wanted to maybe kind of go a little bit deeper on because I think there are two elements of building a business that are, that are in many ways the hardest. Um, the first thing that, that really caught my ear was you said, I got, I, what I took from Silicon Valley was this idea of user-centered design and you described listening to customers. Um, my first question is, how structured were you in listening to customers? Were you paying attention to people that you knew well who were kind of early adopters? Were you trying to create more structure with focus groups? Were you, you know, what was that process like? Because I think that a lot of people don't really know how to dig in and listen to the customer with a lot of, um, with a lot of organization. And so I'm kind of interested in how you approached that. And I'll hold my second question uh, for a couple of minutes. Cool. From now. That's a great question. Um, you know, initially when I first got started, I approached it with like, oh, I should just survey people on what they want. And I, I feel like the information just coming back from a survey can be so tainted by the, even the how you asked the question. So it didn't, and of course, like, who are you surveying? So I feel like I actually didn't have the, the background in surveying to conduct a very effective survey. Uh, what I found more useful than anything else was 
being the customer service representative myself. So, and that's kind of why the business grew so slowly because I'm amongst all the other things to do, I put myself on the front line like that, which meant manning my farmer's market booth, getting into long tangential conversations with all the people who showed up and here and there gleaning an insight, you know, um, talking to people on the phone, take, placing phone orders, uh, reviews actually helped a lot. Like every time a review came in that wasn't like stellar, there, were, there was some insight in that, but really, really just like embedding myself into the community, getting to know the people who are using our product. Um, at that point, you know, ceremonial cacao, that was definitely the early adopters stage. So we, we, we're definitely, and now I would say we're kind of in like the early, kind of the second stage. If, if you look at product adoption in a marketplace, you know, there's probably like six stages. We're probably in like the second stage at this point. We're, we're still in the fairly early stages, but we are seeing it spread a lot wider. Um, so that was just kind of really rewarding time. It was just like getting to know people, talking to them, getting all their feedback, like really getting curious, like, how are you using this product? Like, can I watch you make a cup of cacao? Like just really going in depth that way I love that. and you know honestly I, I still do that i still read every single review on the website i still answer the phone when people call there there continue to be little pieces that we haven't thought about so that's that's kind of built into our company culture is is really you know not assuming that we know at best and, and listening to to our customers for ideas I love that. I mean, I feel like the title of this talk could be, you know, um, make yourself the customer service rep as the CEO. Um, but that, that idea is so powerful. My second question is more around the idea of when a product achieves something that is different in the market and you do have a very differentiated product, very differentiated value proposition. How do you actually get people to uh, know that? And, um, you know, this kind of gets into the tactics and the experiments that I know that you've run with marketing. But even if you have something that is different, it's hard to get that story out. Um, and so kind of can you walk us through the two or three most important things in the last few years that you've done to, to, to tell the story? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think you, you know the answer to this. It's all in the content marketing. Um, we, I started off the company when I like committed to it in 2014 with a Kickstarter. And I, I was terrified of writing emails at that point. I actually hired a friend of mine to ghost write emails for me so that I could get over the hump. And then, you know, she would basically write something. I was like, oh, no, we can't possibly need this, this, and that. But that's what it took to get me started to send out the emails. And sending out emails has been like a mainstay of, of how we drive revenue from, from that point on. I mean, it's, I think it's... Gosh, I think email marketing accounts for like 30% of our total revenue, which is a huge chunk. Um, and we, we send out an email every single week, just in newsletter style. We've gotten a lot more sophisticated on our targeting of that. Um, and we also send out automated trip sequences and such, but they really work. And, you know, it's, it's important to understand that customers you know, they need to get to know you as a brand. Email is a great way, you know, for even if they don't read your email right away, they'll come back to it when they have some time to read it. And so you can kind of create all this long form contact content for people to digest it. Um, we do the same on our website. You know, we have some very long web pages that people will peruse and, and really get to see who we are through. I spend a lot of time 
trying to distill all the concepts that we work with and our experience into something that's really digestible for people. So we're, we're constantly refining our web content. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, these days a lot of people come to us and they're like, I read every single page on your website, you know, or like, I know all about you. You do this, this, and this, and that. I'm like, where do you learn that? And they're like, Oh, on your website. I was like, Oh, that's really cool. You know? And so it's, it, it kind of make, we have to make it easy for people to learn about us. And if we aren't proactively putting out the content to make that easy for people, then they're not going to learn about us and they're not going to know how we're different. And that, I, I think that's one of the things with, with, especially any any sort of craft food product especially is like there's i mean like for me learning about chocolate has been like going down the rabbit hole in alice in wonderland it's just like it's infinite it keeps going like i'm constantly learning and if i keep that all to myself what's the use like sure it'll help me make a better product but how much more powerful if i take people along with me on that journey you know i send out to our newsletter like wow i just went to tanzania and like i had all these experiences i didn't expect and it's like shifting how i think about chocolate in this way and that way so really inviting people to just come with me on this what's been this like fabulous exploration and learning adventure um and we're constantly thinking about how to do that better um but increasingly i'm i'm thinking about our core offering as only 50% is like the product. The other 50% is about the experience, about the learning and the education. So really focusing a lot more resources on, on the, the media content that we're offering people. Yeah, if I could play that back, I wonder how you would correct this synthesis if, or, or amend this synthesis. Because I think what you said is probably different than what I would hear from a lot of direct consumer brands over the last few years. You didn't say, I, I got the story out through targeted Facebook advertising or Instagram advertising. You said, I got the story out by building long form content on my website that served to answer questions and rank highly when people were ready to begin their own cacao journey. And when they came to the site, I began emailing them with more content about what I was learning about cacao in my own journey. Um, and I feel like that's a, that is a, it is a more sustainable path to growth, maybe a more a slower path to growth, um, but it, it is probably quite different than what a lot of direct-to-consumer brands have done over the last five years. And so how, is, that a, is that a good synthesis or would you amend it in any way? Yeah, I can expand on it. Um, so we, you know, with all that long-form content and not very much competition in the ceremonial cacao space, kind of having identified that we wanted to rank high on two keywords, which were ceremonial cacao and cacao ceremony, um, we, we really accomplished that. So we, we were always on page one of Google. Um, so people could find us. We just got organic traffic. Then we also, our first paid advertising was actually Google ads because we figured, well, well if somebody's typing in ceremonial cacao, there already are kind of high purchase intent early adopter customer, or they've heard about it for some reason. They're a really good candidate to buy from us. So Google ads was, was an early part of our strategy. Um, for customer acquisition. Um, also, uh, we launched an affiliate program. So just, you know, giving, giving people some compensation for re referring their friends. Um, that, you know, I would say 90% of affiliates are really excited to promote your product when they, you know, enjoy your brand, but only 10% of them have the marketing sales savvy to do anything significant for your company. But um, I think it was in 2018, we actually stumbled upon a YouTuber who was 
early on in her journey growing her her YouTube following. She's now at more than a million followers. Um, she never even really wanted compensation. She just loved making these videos about her experiences with the cacao and she's been a huge part of her growth journey. Um, she's come on board now. She makes videos for us and she, she's traveled to Belize and Guatemala with us. So we've really deepened in our relationship with her. But that, that kind of shows you it really only takes like one or two successful affiliates to make an enormous difference for your brand. And again, that was not, you know, that was largely unpaid to begin with. Um, it was just really connecting with people, getting to know them and, and finding like this mutually aligned passion. She's like, I have video skills. I want to put them to use in the world in a good way. I love what you're doing. Like, let's, let's collab here. Um, Super interesting. And then in terms of acquisition, we only really in the last year started paid Facebook ads, believe wow. it or not, Instagram. Yeah. Um, our primary social media strategy starting from about two years ago was make a post on Instagram every single day and just organically build a following that way, respond to every single message that comes in, you know, just be really proactive. And that has made it, that's laid a really good foundation for paid advertising to be successful. We've also focused a ton on the conversion rate on our website. So rather than driving a lot of traffic to our website, we focused on taking the little bit of traffic that we get from being in our ceremonial cacao niche and converting really high. I mean, we have like a 5% conversion rate wow. right now, which, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's because of all the content on the website, but also everything is optimized for understanding, like, why would somebody stop from buying here? Our abandoned cart email, actually, this is a great tip. Um, we have a sequence of three emails that go out. I think the last one, if none of the previous two worked, is, hey, what stopped you from buying from us? And believe it or not, people, that's an automated email, but people would constantly write back like, hey, the shipping was too high, or I had a question about this. And so that would give us then still an opportunity to convert and circle back and helped us constantly build on that list of like, what aren't we quite doing right yet? Um, and so all of that work prior to paid advertising has kind of made the paid advertising successful. Um, but that I, I almost tell people, it's like, you know, only go there if you have a lot of money to spend. Like there's so many other things you have to get right first to successfully convert that traffic and to follow up on that traffic. Because I mean, social media is incredible in that way and that you can drive a huge amount of traffic to your website. Um, but you, you, you kind of have to really know and yeah, know who you're driving to the website and why they would want to use your product and why they wouldn't. You know, one of the things that I always think about when I'm having these conversations is what would the title of this conversation be? And yeah. um, I think one of the things that's kind of stuck out to me is this idea of foundations. It sounds like you spent a lot of time building an emotional foundation to build the business. And then you spend a lot of time building a foundation of unpaid customer acquisition uh, that is now serving you in a more diversified customer acquisition strategy. Um, so foundations are super interesting in, in the context of this conversation. The question that I always like to close with is if you had um, a brother, a sister, a very close friend um, who was thinking about starting uh, a brand, an e-commerce brand, what are the one or two questions that you would ask them uh, to make sure that you, that you felt they were thinking about uh, this, this endeavor? in a rational way and in an effective way. 
I mean, I feel like so many of our friends still think that they can just put up a website and be successful, you know, and it, it, it's websites have to, you know, basically in e-commerce website is taking the place of a store. You know, you walk into a store, you can talk to somebody, you can try on all these things. You, you like, you know, you know how to get back there. Like you might leave with a brochure or flyer. Like there's all these services besides selling a product that a store provides, you know, or think of a cafe, you know, you just like go to the cafe to hang out. There's this whole community and ecosystem that's created. Um, and a website just being this thing on a computer is really not that engaging, it really doesn't pull you in in the same way. So you have to kind of replicate that whole experience and, and follow through and the connection and, and ease of access of information and, and you know, like feeling of, feeling that, you know, you, you want to make it more than just a website. You want, you want to connect to somebody else's passion. And that passion really has to get communicated somehow. So I, I would say that's probably my first question. Like, is, is like, is your heart fully in this? Like, are you gonna follow through on what it takes to succeed in e-commerce, which is so much more than putting up a website. I mean, you, you, you have to learn and master all these different app ecosystems. You have to be willing to just fall on your face over and over again as you try these different things. You have to be willing to waste thousands of dollars on paid advertising without a single conversion you know like all the, all the things that are gonna inevitably happen like you if, if your heart's not fully in it if it's not what you're truly passionate about if you're just kind of looking to make a quick buck um I, I would say don't go for it like wait until you really know what the thing is that that you're willing to put that kind of effort into because it is a lot. And, and I think people look a lot to success and, and like, oh, these brands that are successful and it looks like everything's going really easy, but they don't see all the foundations that happened before that. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really the slow and trying people. And we're, we're a lot of people give up, you know, or a lot of people are like, oh gosh, this is too hard. Oh gosh, I don't know this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. So that's probably the number one question. Um, Yeah, and I, I maybe that really is the question because I really think that connecting to passion and spending our time doing that is one of the most important things we can be doing given given the state of the planet, given the state of our environmental and social systems. Like it's pretty crazy out there now. I mean, I really with the business now, a lot of my time is spent thinking about resiliency. Like, how do we just adapt to the next thing that we can't? at all expect like just shipping stuff has been a total nightmare this year um but it's like where all of our revenue comes from so we've had to just adapt and like learn to communicate really transparently as things shift so yeah we we need everybody's participation you know to to shift things and you know keep the planet a habitable place and a place where we're not afraid of our neighbors and, and, and looking forward to connecting with each other and all the unique expressions of life that we are. So um, that, yeah, that's why I think passion is really, really important in, in starting any business and, and being really honest with yourself about the sustained effort that it's gonna take to get there. A great question and I think a great way to close. Where can people find um, Firefly online? Um, ceremonial-cacao.com 
Uh, that's our website. You can also follow us on Instagram. Cacao Ceremony is our handle. Very good. Thank you so much, Jonas, for being a part of this. It's been fascinating and uh, I've really appreciated and enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me.